So today I'll be reading the Bible. Today's Bible reading is from 2 Samuel 3, 1 to 39. I'll just give you a second to find that. During the long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, David was growing stronger and the house of Saul was becoming weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Aniam the Jezreelite. His second was Chiliab by Abigail the widow of the Nabal the Carmelite. The third was Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of King Talmai of Geshur. The fourth was Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth was Shepatiah, son of Abital. The sixth was Ithream, by David's wife Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner kept acquiring more power in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ea and Ishbosheth, questioned Abner. Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry about Ishbosheth's accusation. Am I a dog head who am I a dog's head who belongs to Judah? He asked, All this time I've been loyal to the family of your father Saul, to his brothers and to his friends, and haven't betrayed you to David. And now you accuse me of wrongdoing with this woman? May God punish Abner and do so severely. If I don't do for David what the Lord swore to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to establish the throne of David over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beer, Bathsheba, Ishbosheth did not dare to respond to Abner because he was afraid of him. Abner sent messages to his representatives to say to David, Whose land is it? Make your covenant with me, and you can be certain I am on your side to turn Israel over to you. David replied, Good, I will make a covenant with you. However, there's one thing I require of you. You will not see my face unless you bring me Saul's daughter, Michael, when you tell me to come see me. Then David sent messages, messengers to Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. Give me back my wife, Michael. She was engaged. I was engaged to her for the price of a hundred Philistines' foreskins. So Ishbosheth sent someone to take her away from her husband, Palachal of Laish. Her husband followed her, weeping all the way to Bahurim. Ab- Abner said to him, Go back. So he went back. Abner confirmed with the elders of Israel, In the past you wanted David to be king over you. Now take action, because the Lord has spoken concerning David. Through my servant, David, I will save you, my people Israel, from the power of the Philistines and the power of all Israel's enemies. Abner also informed the Benjaminites and went to Hebron to inform David all that was agreed on by Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. When Abner and the twenty men came to David at Hebron, David held a banquet for him and his men. Abner said to David, Let me go now, and I will gather all Israel, the Lord my king. They will make a covenant with you, and you will reign over all you desire. So David dismissed Abner and went in peace. Just then, David's soldiers and Joab returned from a raid and brought a large amount of plundered goods with them. Abner was not with David in Hebron because David had dismissed him and had gone in peace. When Joab and his whole army arrived, Joab was informed. Abner, son of Ner, came to see the king, and the king dismissed him, and he went in peace. Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Look here, Abner came to you. Why, why did you dismiss him? Now he's getting away. You know that Abner, son of Ner, came to deceive you and to find out about your military activities and everything you're doing. Then Joab left David and sent messengers after Abner. They brought him back from the well of Sarah, but David was unaware of it. When Abner returned to Hebron, Joab pulled him aside to the middle of the city gate, as if to speak to him privately, and there Joab stabbed him in the stomach. So Abner died in revenge for the death of Asahel, Joab's brother. David heard about it later and said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. 
May it hang over the Job's head and his whole and his father's whole family. And may the house of Job never be without someone who has a discharge or skin disease, or a man who can only work a spindle, or someone who falls by the sword of stars. Job and his brother Abishai killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. David ordered Joab and all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, put on sackcloth and mourn over Abner. And King David walked behind the coffin. When they buried Abner in Hebron, the kings wept aloud at Abner's tomb. All the people wept, and the king sang a lament for Abner. Should Abner die as a fool dies, your hands were not bound, your feet were not placed in bronze shackles. You fell like the one who falls, victim to criminals, and all the people wept over him even more. Then they came to urge David to eat food while it was still day, but David took an oath. May God punish me and do so severely if I taste bread or anything else before sunset. All people took note of this, and it pleased them. In fact, everything the king did pleased them. On that day, all the troops and all the Israel were convinced that the king had no part in the killing of Abner, son of Ner. Then the king said to his soldiers, You must know that a great leader has fallen in Israel today. As for me, even though I am anointed king, I have little power today. These men, the son of Zeriah, are too fierce for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. Thanks, Georgie. Love you to keep your Bibles open uh, at this very complex passage we have ahead of us today. It's wonderfully rich too. Life is a beautiful mess. Our planet is stunning. It's full of opportunities and joyful experiences. Yet our planet is a story of constant danger, disaster and challenge. My life, your life, is a beautiful mess, full of great achievements and unfinished plans, full of progress and past mistakes that still haunt you, full of good relationships and bad relationships and deep internal battles. Our social media culture tells us to present our lives like Monet, but real life is like Pro Heart. We church this morning as messy people. There is no one here with their life altogether. And so the challenge of life is to navigate a path through the mess. It is not to fix the mess. What is God doing in the mess? It is the question human beings have asked and wrestled with for 3,000 years. Is God a disappointed parent waving a finger at you? Is he a grandma with a mop and bucket cleaning behind you? Or is God the cause of the mess? You hear it all the time. Look at what the church has done. See the anguish and guilt your teaching on blah causes a person wanting to live their own way. Maybe God's just gone camping. Well, the Bible, the Bible in your hands this morning, it actually gives us an answer to this question. Because across the whole Bible, God is actively working in the mess. God is engaged. His hands are dirty and he's working powerfully and often quietly to ensure his plans happen for his glory and for his people. And that is what we're seeing in this strange book of 2 Samuel. 
2 Samuel is full of mess. Israel is in a mess. There is political instability, and then you've got the threats from the Philistines. What is God doing? He is at work in the mess. And he is preparing the way for the coming of his son, Jesus. A thousand years before Jesus is born, God is establishing a shadow kingdom, a prototype. And as you look at the prototype, you are seeing a shadow of the kingdom of Jesus with similarities and differences. And so today in chapter 3, we're jumping into the mess. And we're going to consider three things from 2 Samuel. We're going to look at the messy rise of David to king. We're going to look at the mess made by strong men. And then we're going to answer the question, what is God doing in the mess? Okay, so point one, the messy rise of David to king of all Israel. What's the big question at the beginning of 2 Samuel? It's this, who will be Israel's king? And up on the screen, for those of you who don't really know this history, it was a battle of two houses, two dynasties. You've got the house of Saul and his kids, which included the 10 northern tribes of Israel. Its king was Ishbosheth, the fourth son of Saul, but it was really led by, king, by General Abner, the leader of the army. And then the other house was the house of David. It only included one tribe, the tribe of Judah, and it was led by King David, the one God had anointed as the next king. General Joab led David's army. And so in 3 verse 1 in your Bibles, we read that these two houses were in the middle of a long civil war. That was a mixture of direct conflict, like at Gibeon in chapter 2, where they battled, but really it was just year after year of constant hostility, like North and South Korea. And so over three acts in chapter 3, one house takes control of all Israel. Act number 1 is verses 1 to 11. And you can have a look at it there in 3 verse 1. We begin with a battle update. So during the long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, David was growing stronger and the house of Saul was becoming weaker. Okay, we've got our update. Interestingly, the strengthening and the weakening were both due to a power grab. David was growing stronger as he grabbed wife after wife after wife and strengthened his family line by making son after son after son. We'll talk about that later. The house of Saul became weaker as General Abner became stronger. In verse 6, the strong man in the house of Saul grabs one of Saul's harem for himself. Now, what's that? What's going on here? Well, here it is. In that culture, to take the harem of a deceased king was a claim on the king's throne. And so what Abner was doing by taking Rizpah was challenging Ishbosheth, saying, I'm better than you. And Ishbosheth knew it and he called him out. So was Abner sorry? No. Abner went on the front foot. 
He said, who do you think you're talking to? I'm not a scavenging dog of, my, of your enemies. I am the loyal one. Now, that word loyal is really important. It's the word hesed, like really like guttural hesed. And it's actually used all the way through the Old Testament to describe God's steadfast love for his people. It's always God saying, look at my hesed for you. What Abner's doing here is claiming he is like God. And then he changes loyalty to the house of David. And the house of Saul enters palliative care. The word of God is being fulfilled through an arrogant man. Now, what's really strange here is that Abner acknowledges God's promise to David as he changes loyalties. Did Abner know the promise of God all along? Why dedicate so much energy to setting up an alternative king to David if he knew God was against it? We don't know. But do you know what I think it is? That's sin's foolishness. That's what happened when human beings know God's way and deliberately go against it. And you will see that in your own life. Act 2, the brutal negotiation, verses 12 to 16. Well, Abner, he's the action man. He immediately implements his change of loyalty. And so he makes David, he makes contact with David and offers him an offer. He says, David, we can unite the land. I can bring the 10 northern tribes to you. Make a deal with me. Abner thinks he's in charge. But David is not Ishbosheth. It's a brutal negotiation, isn't it? Because David agrees on his own terms. He demands the return of his first wife, Michal, Saul's daughter, that Saul had taken away from him. Now, maybe he wanted her back for love. Most likely, it was just politics. A token of the house of Saul coming under the house of David. And then David, he undercuts, he undercuts Abner and he goes straight to Ishbosheth. And Abner is left as a middleman. But after seven years of rebellion, we see the leaders of the house of Saul now serving and obeying King David, God's king. But we're left with a horrible scene, aren't we? As Michal is taken back to David, her current husband, Palatale, returns home heartbroken. What a mess. In Act 3, Abner works to get the 10 northern tribes on board with his plan. Even Benjamin, Saul's own tribe. And Abner's got a gospel. Here's his gospel, three good points. David is the real king for you. This is God's will. He made a promise and the time to act is now. And it worked. The northern tribes, even Benjamin, commit their loyalty to David, just as God said would happen. And then Abner comes to Hebron with the good news. The war of the houses was over. And then surprisingly, do you see it there? David throws a feast for Abner. 
David doesn't list all of Abner's aggression and political games and lying and betrayal that caused the civil war. No, this is a moment of generous mercy by God's king to a rebel. Three times we're told David sent Abner away in peace. Abner went home reconciled with God's king. He went home safe and secure. And that is a picture, a shadow of the generous welcome God gives you and me in Jesus. We see it there in Colossians chapter 1. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now Jesus has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless and blameless before him. The shadow becomes a reality. Well, the war is over, but there's a fourth act. And you see it there in verse 22. The final act begins with a contrast. We've got Abner heading home in peace, big smile. And you've got Joab, who's angry at David. He's angry at Abner. Actually, he's just angry at the world. No doubt David sent General Joab away so that they could have the peace talks. However, Joab was used to being at the table and what had happened was not acceptable to Joab. He thought he knew better than God's king. And so Joab rebukes King David like God did to Eve and like Samuel did to Saul. What have you done? You are a fool. David, he's a spy. You're naive. But what really troubled Joab was that the king had made peace with a rebel. The silence was deafening. So Joab takes action and does what he accused Abner of doing. Joab deceives King David. And he sends a message in David's name to Abner, asking him to come back, like from Lucknow to Orange. And Abner's totally surprised, right? He's heading home. But he goes, hey, if that's what David wants, I'll come back. And he never sees the dagger. The dagger just came in and it was too late. This was murder. Unjustifiable vengeance from an angry man. The passage finishes with David deeply distressed. It was exactly what David had refused to do to Saul over the years and years of David being pursued and persecuted. And so David, he distances himself from Joab. He says, I'm completely innocent of this evil act. And then he calls a curse, a horrible curse on Joab and his family. And then he orders Joab to lead the funeral with his head between his knees. And then the first act of the unified king was to lead the funeral. David grieved. He fasted. He composed a lament like he did for Saul to express the injustice of his death. Joab had been wicked. Abner was a great leader because he had changed loyalties. He had put himself under God's king. The war was over. 
Israel was united under God's promised king. But what a mess. What an absolute horrible mess. What are we going to do this morning with these women-grabbing, power-mongering, duplicitous men? What are you going to do with them? Well, each of them are a warning, and each of them point you to Jesus. Should we look at Abner first? Let's have a look at Abner. Abner, he's a strange mix of Elon Musk and Wonder Woman. All right, so kind of merge those two together, right? He is strong and conniving. He's strategic. Abner is into Abner. His motto, get on board or get out of my way. And as we've been reading Abner's story, he's always the aggressor. He always steps into the fight. He's the one who installed Ishbosheth as the alternative king. He's the one who led the conflict at the end of chapter 2. And he is the one that has now brought the northern and southern tribes together. And like so many Old Testament characters, Abner speaks more truthfully than he knows. Did you notice? He's the first in the Bible to declare David as God's servant. That title is just taken all the way through the Old Testament, even to Luke chapter 169. He's the first to address David as king. And his gospel is hard to fault, isn't it? God is bringing David to the throne, get on board. That's totally the right gospel. But Abner, he's not a model for you to follow if you like being the strong man. Nor is he an example to avoid. No, no, Abner is a mirror of our sinful hearts. We love to look at each other and say, see the good things we do and the bad things we do. But we've got to go further. And Abner says, go into the heart. And what we see in Abner is Abner's heart is bent away from God. At his core, Abner wants the steering wheel. Abner wants to be in control. And you and me all share Abner's nature. All of us who have been around the church for a while can quote the Bible and then not submit to it tomorrow. All of us can be godly in some areas of our lives and then get caught up in sin stupidity in other areas. You see, Abner, he's a warning for anyone who wants to have two hands on the steering wheel of their life while God wants two hands on the steering wheel of our life. He is a warning to any Christian here at church at nine who has gone to Jesus for forgiveness, but not gone to Jesus to make him Lord. And the lesson is clear. All strong men and all strong women will fall in the mess of our world. The wise person willingly takes their hands off the steering wheel and gives it to the ultimate strong man. Jesus' strength was never playing politics. Jesus was never about smashing people. His strength came from obeying God's word, even to the point of death. And Jesus is strong enough to defeat the demons in your life, the addictions in your life, because Jesus is strong enough to defeat the sin and the death in your life. He is the king you want with two hands on your steering wheel.
Joab. He's a mix of Ignago Montoya and Lady Danbury. He's confident and sneaky. He's dedicated and revengeful. Joab is a master general. Yet in Joab's heart, who does Joab want? He just wants his own honour, his own reputation, his own achievements. And that led to him deceiving the king and murdering an enemy in peacetime. All of us are sitting here going, oh, thank goodness I'm not like Joab. Thank goodness I'm not like him. Beware of chronological snobbery. Beware whenever you look back in history and think, I would never do that. Because Joab is not far from all of us. If you're a Christian here this morning, the King Jesus calls you to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. How often do you care about yourself more than Jesus? The truth is we're not always full of good intentions. We often bend the truth to benefit ourselves. And we are attracted to be with people that matter in places that matter. Our modern world is full of chronological snobbery. It is how we interpret history. But God says it's foolish. God says the wise person is honest. They come to Jesus not with the excuse that we're better than Joab. They come to Jesus in repentance, not excuses. And he, his mercy is abounding. They come to Jesus for wisdom and help so they can walk in a manner worthy of the king. What do you do with David? Well, he's a strange mix. He's like a pizza with kiwi fruit. He's a man of great faith, right? In this story, he is patiently waiting and trusting the Lord. And that offer of mercy to Abner, what a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus in how Jesus treats me. Oh, in 36 to 39, Israel recognizes him not as a, uh, what's the word that they use here? Pleasing. No, the word isn't pleasing. The word is good. Israel recognized him as a good, innocent, gracious and gentle king. But gosh, two pieces of kiwi fruit ruin the pizza. Sorry, if you like kiwi fruit in your pizza, this, is, this illustration sucks for you, right? Like, <laughs> you're weird and I'm not, right? Like, so two pieces of kiwi fruit, right? Number one, David is timid in dealing with Joab. Yes, he publicly shames him. But there was actually a lack of justice there. Joab should have been murdered. Sorry, Joab should have been executed for his murder. But he is left as general of David's army onwards. Now, why did David do that? Was he doing it because he wanted to keep the army's support? I don't know. But that decision of leaving Joab without justice would haunt David all the way through to Samuel. You'll go, why did you leave him there as you read this book? Second piece of kiwi fruit, David's wives. Verses 1 to 5, six sons to six wives. 
it looks like the family is growing stronger. But the narrator lists those words beautifully read by Georgie so you can see that David is not acting in line with God's word. In Deuteronomy chapter 17 on the screen, God's design for a king is he must not acquire many wives for himself like the other kings. But David thought he knew better. And so David amassed a harem like foreign kings. He built political alliances via marriage like other kings. He followed the culture around him and it stalled his kingdom. Why does he list those six kids? Because three of them would bring complete disaster to David's reign in 2 Samuel. Amnon, we will read, causes a disastrous family feud. Absalom tries to seize David's throne and Adonijah claims succession over Solomon. What a mess. The Bible is shockingly honest, even about the best of leaders. Don't think it records this messy stuff so that you can have permission to do something outside God's will. That's not why the Bible records it. The Bible records it so you can look in the mirror and see the impact of sin and the folly of ignoring God's word. Because you are not far from David. You see, the truth is, me and you, we often think we know better than God's word. James chapter 1. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. How often do we follow our outrage culture? That we're really quick to criticise others and we don't take any time to ask a question and listen. We act as if we know better than God. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee sexual immorality. We often embrace our sensual culture with our bodies and our minds online and in person. And we just think, oh, I can handle the temptation. The Bible says you can't. You say, I know better than God's word. Acts 20.35, it's more blessed to give than receive. We often embrace our materialistic culture that hoards money and stuff for self-pleasure. Are we any different to our neighbours in this? We act as if we know better. You see, David teaches us that we don't know any better. The truth bomb will drive us to our knees and then lift our eyes to the one who never disappoints. Jesus knows better on every aspect of life. He suffered and died to deliver us so we can live the best life with him. And if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, his people listen to him. The Ten Boon family were Dutch Christians who helped many Jews escape the Nazi Holocaust of World War II. Corrie and her sister were betrayed and they were sent to a notorious Nazi concentration camp. And it was horrendous. Corrie says, where was God in the mess? And if you read her book, The Hiding Place, what Corrie shares is this. God was teaching us to pray without ceasing. 
God was teaching me to give thanks in all circumstances. God was teaching me to love my enemies. God was teaching me to show Jesus to my neighbour. On the surface of 2 Samuel 3, all we see is mess. War, envy, fear, revenge. But where's God? He is right in the middle of it doing his work through power-driven men and disappointing leaders. And God sets up his prototype kingdom with with God's king on the throne through the mess of 2 Samuel 3. And that pattern, God working in the mess, is exactly what we see at the cross of Jesus. The most evil thing ever done is at once the best thing that's ever happened. Through a travesty of justice like Joab's murder, Jesus was crowned on a cross and the kingdom of God inaugurated. Jesus Christ teaches us that God works in the mess to fulfill his plans. And so as we sit here this morning, our world is in a mess. And some of you have so much mess in your life. And you sit here reading your Bible going, nothing looks so unlikely and remote as Jesus Christ coming back and making everything right. But 2 Samuel 3 teaches us that nothing ever stops God's word. And even though few people recognize Jesus' kingship in orange, he's still on the throne and his mission is unstoppable. And so we walk through the mess of life with hope. Not hope in our own strength, not hope in the promise of humanity. We walk through the mess of hope by trusting God's living word. And we navigate the messy life by listening to his principles, obeying his commands and holding holding firm to his glorious promises. Have a listen to Corrie Ten Boom. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. His will will be done on earth and in heaven. Let's pray. Almighty God, your word never fails. You are at work in the mess, doing your plan for your glory and your people. Take the steering wheel of our, ha- of our lives, Lord, Help us to be people who do not think we know better than you. For you are our good God. Jesus is our Lord. And we trust you. Amen.